that. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, asked if I'd dismiss the kids, but uh, we'll wait just a second to do that. I'm going to ask you guys to do something a little different this morning. I ask that you uh, collect your possessions that are with you, that you brought into the sanctuary. Get them all together. And second, I'm going to ask you to stand up and find a seat in a different pew. All right? So get all your stuff together. Find all your things. I know some of you get up really early and got here to get your pew, and you hate to give it up. And those that came late and got stuck in the front, they're going to be rewarded. But everybody get up. Go find a new pew. You guys in the balcony, find a new pew up there. If you're bold enough, come on downstairs. Some of you guys might even be daring enough to go up to the balcony. You guys did really well with that exercise. I have a feeling I might face more resistance at the 11 o'clock service. But that's just a hunch. This is an object lesson. I'm going to be talking about change this morning. Change is difficult. Now, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing a few of you refuse to do this exercise. Some of you may have been thinking, this is just plain silly and I'm comfortable right where I am. But others of you may have thought, you know, I've been sitting in this pew for 30 years, and it's worked so far, and you know what? I don't need to move. I'm comfortable right here, thank you very much. Some of you may not have been willing to move for even 30 minutes. Now, I can say that because if you notice where I sat this morning, it's where I always sit. And when a group came in late, rather than scooting down, I made them move in so I could sit right where I wanted to sit. I thought since I had to change my uh, position in the sanctuary this morning, I would ask you to, uh, to join me in that. But seriously, we are going to look at a difficult topic, the topic of change. Um, I speak as one nearing to hear, needing to hear this message. I am uh, I'm not Mr. Change. I, uh, I grew up in this town. I now live about 400 yards from the home that I grew up in. Uh, my mom was born in that house and just recently died in that house. And uh, change was not a big thing for her. Family traditions were huge in my, in my family. We ate dinner at 6.30 every single evening. We celebrated holidays exactly the same way and with the same people. Um, not only uh, did I grow up in a family that was very traditional, my, my life has been pretty stable. Um, for the last 17 years, I've lived at the same address. When uh, Topher came along, when God blessed us with a son... We need a little more space. Rather than move, uh, we added another floor to our house. For the last 26 years, I've been doing youth ministry. The last almost 10, about nine and a half, have been here at South Shore Baptist Church. Uh, so uh, you can see that change isn't really a, my strong suit. I'm pretty traditional in my values. You might say I'm a, I'm a classic old New Englander. 
Um, I like the comfort of tradition and things being the way they are. Well, uh, before we get into God's Word, would you uh, join me in prayer? Let's pray. God, I I don't think there's any place right now that you would rather have us be uh, than together in your house. I don't think there's anything you'd rather us be doing right now than worshiping you. So we give you praise and honor and glory and thanks for the privilege we have to gather in your name, uh, to look at your word, to sing songs of praise and worship to you. God, I pray that this next 30 minutes uh, would bring glory to your name. And Lord, I pray that it would make you smile what you hear, that, that, uh, that what I speak would be true to your word, uh, and Lord, that you might use uh, your word to change our lives that we might become more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. The people of the Lord said, Amen. We're going to uh, look at Isaiah chapter 43, beginning at verse 14. Isaiah 43, beginning at verse 14. Yeah, the children now can be dismissed to children's church. I always forget to do that. That's on page 719 in the Pew Bibles. Isaiah 43, reading verses 14 through 19. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians and the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Now this past year, uh, Pastor Jeremy has been working his way through Isaiah. And um, if you've been with us, you know that that Pastor Jeremy has taught that Israel's recent past has been pretty tough. It's been pretty rough. Israel sought after foreign gods and taken part in pagan and and, uh, polytheistic practices. And as a result, she suffered the consequences of God's judgment. Israel's sin and disobedience has resulted in her being plundered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now God, through the mouth and writing of Isaiah, declares to the Israelites, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Does Isaiah really intend that Israel should forget about her past? Let's take another look at verses 16 and 17. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. This is a reference to the escape of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. Isaiah is reminding Israel of God's great deliverance, an event that Israel continued to remember and continues to remember and celebrate every year with Passover. So is Isaiah telling his people that they should forget about Passover? 
Should Israel forget about God's incredible deliverance through the parting of the Red Sea as they escape from slavery in Egypt? Surely Isaiah, one of the prophets who most stressed Israel's past, could not mean that God's redemptive acts and all the revelation connected with them should be forgotten. I was puzzled by this, so I borrowed a commentary from Pastor Jeremy, a commentary on Isaiah, and here's what John N. Oswald has to say about these verses. We humans are inveterate idolaters. We turn everything into a fetish if we are allowed to. So for Israel, the glorious saving events of the past, with all their details, had become a straitjacket into which every other act of God was forced. As a result, the Israelites were frequently unable to recognize God's new actions when they came. Israel had made the celebration of her past into an idol. The Passover, an event that should remind the people of God's great deliverance and faithfulness, had become an event that contained and constrained Israel's ability to see God. At least to see God at work in any way other than he had worked in the past. Israel's great past had, in a sense, become an idol. It was as if the event of the Passover, rather than the Lord, who was responsible for the Passover, was now of greatest importance. This unhealthy focus on the past event, rather than on God himself, was getting in the way of Israel's vision of how God was going to act in the future. In verse 19, God declares that he is making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. At first glance, no big deal. But what we have here is a stark contrast with the Passover. The Passover, amongst other things, celebrates the Hebrews' wanderings for 40 years without a way, without a path in the wilderness. And in the Passover, Israel recalls how God turned the sea into dry land. And now what's God going to do? He's going to turn the dry land into streams. Isaiah is fearful that Israel, with her eyes so focused on the Passover, is going to miss how God will now deliver his people as God is going to do a new thing. But just what is the new thing that God is going to do? The new thing about which Isaiah prophesies is the twofold salvation of Israel. First, Israel will be brought out of her captivity to the Babylonians. Let's look again at verse 14. This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. The Babylonians will flee from the Hebrews, from the Israelites, in the many ships that they used in the Persian Gulf and on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the large, great fleet of ships in which they took much pride. They're going to run away. But the new thing Isaiah is talking about is more than just the Babylonians running away and Israel being restored as a nation. God, through the prophet Isaiah, is foretelling the coming of the Messiah who will establish a new covenant, a completely new way by which God will save his people, not from the enemy of Babylon, but from the spiritual enemies of sin, death, and judgment. 
The new covenant would not be a covenant based on keeping the law, but rather a covenant of grace and mercy. This new covenant would be inaugurated many years later by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with the new covenant, if you're here this morning and this is something new to you, please come up after the service. There'll be some folks over here who are part of our prayer team. There'll be uh, pastors and elders up front who would love to talk with you and explain to you about the new covenant and how you can have a new covenant relationship with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the new thing that Isaiah is foretelling. The coming of the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one and only one who can liberate us from bondage to law and sin. But many Israelites would miss the Messiah when he came. Why would they not have eyes to see and ears to hear the Christ? I think much of Israel missed Jesus the Christ because they focused on the past and how God had delivered them. Instead of focusing on the Lord, the one who was to deliver them. Which brings us to today's application of verses 18 and 19. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. At this time, I invite you to uh, find the sermon notes if you want. If you want to fill in the blanks here, keep you awake for the next 25 minutes or so. I want to answer three important questions, or at least address three important questions. We, they won't be answered this morning. Why change? Why is change so difficult? And what should we change and what should we leave well enough alone? So A, why change? Reason number one, God is immutable. Immutable, I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E. God is immutable, God is perfect, we are not. Folks who were in my senior high Sunday school class know what God is immutable means. We've been studying the moral attributes and the divine attributes of God. Although God may choose to act in different ways, God is unchanging in the perfection of His character, nature, and promises. God is unchanging in the perfection of His character, nature, and promises. The psalmist speaks of God in Psalm 102.27, But you do not change, and your years will never end. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 6.17, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear. James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shadows. God is immutable. God's character and purpose does not change. But God is also perfect. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus commands His followers to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is perfect, holy, righteous, and without sin or fault. But we are not perfect. Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Romans 3:23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We come up short. So here's the logical argument. If we're not perfect, and God desires and even commands us to be perfect, then we better be open to change. Amen? Amen? Amen. Thank you. I know that's a little different. I'm asking you to change. We haven't arrived yet. We haven't arrived yet. We're not perfect. 
So we better be open to change. Why change? Reason number two. Change promotes faith. Faith promotes change. Change promotes faith. Faith promotes change. This is kind of a bold statement, but I think it's true. There are no great men or women of faith who kept the status quo. Can you think of some great Bible characters whose lives experienced significant change? This is by no means a comprehensive list. We'll just touch the surface here. Abram to Abraham, Genesis 12.1. The Lord has said... The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Abraham did not die in the house he was born in. Pretty big change. Moses, in Exodus 3.10, God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Big change. In fact, Moses' life had lots of big changes. Uh, Born in, in Egypt to a Hebrew grows up in the home of the Pharaoh, in his palace. As an adult, he sees a, a Hebrew person, slave, being beaten by a slave master, and he smacks the slave master, and the slave master dies, and he flees and goes off to Midian, where he meets uh, Jethro, and he uh, marries Zipporah, he has a son, he becomes a shepherd, and he's there for, what, 40 years? Is that how long he was? 40 years. That's a long time. He's settled into a whole new lifestyle. And then here comes the call from the burning bush, and back to Egypt he goes uh, from, from shepherd to, uh, to the one who's going to deliver his people out of slavery. How about the first disciples? Fishermen, tax collectors. I love the story in Luke 5 where uh, Jesus has these guys have, have been fishing all night long and they haven't caught anything and he, he makes them go out back out and throw down their nets and they catch all these fish. And then they come up on the beach these guys who have been fishing their whole lives, they've now caught the most fish they've ever caught. Ever. Two boats sinking because they're so full of fish. The biggest catch ever. And the, what do they do? They leave the fish in the boat on the beach. They leave everything and go and follow Jesus. These guys were fishermen. They end up being evangelists and church planters, tax collectors, uh, being turned around and going in completely new directions. Talk about changes. And then we have, of course, Saul to Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was out persecuting the church, arresting Christians, locking them up, putting them in prison, holding the cloaks, the coats of those who stoned Stephen. And uh, you know the story, the dramatic change on the road to Damascus. And uh, what a conversion and going in a completely new direction. Uh, From the guy who went around arresting Christians to the guy who goes around spreading the good news of Jesus throughout most of the known world. Uh, No situation stretches us and gets us out of our comfort zone Excuse me, new situations stretch us and get us out of our comfort zone. Hopefully there aren't no situations that do that. I'm certainly in one right now. New situations, they, they make us depend on God because we, we don't have the familiarity and comfort of depending upon ourselves. And as we grow in our faith from being stretched in new places, we become more willing to take on greater risks and greater change. So change promotes faith, faith promotes change. All right, a third reason to answer the question why change can be found from our text this morning. The past can become an idol. The past can become an idol. Like Israel, we can become so focused on God and how God has acted in our past that we lack the vision necessary to see how God is going to act in the future. We must worship the God who has done great things in the past. We must remember and celebrate 
but not worship the great things that he has done. It's wonderful to remember and recount our personal faith journeys. I will always remember and tell the story of how, as a lost, clueless, faithless, Unitarian teenager, I came to know Jesus Christ through the life and ministry of Steve Oliver and the organization of Young Life. Steve's here this morning. That's a, it's pretty cool for me to, to be preaching with the guy in the pulpit who, uh, who shared Christ with me initially when I was a lost teenager. I'm always going to tell kids that. I'm always going to remember that story. It's really important to me. But I better not worship Young Life and think that because God worked this way in my life in the past, that this is the only way He's going to work in the lives of teenagers today. And it's wonderful, it's really wonderful, even more wonderful, if I dare say that, to hear our founding fathers tell the stories of God's faithfulness to our church in the past, in days gone by, how God miraculously provided for our church to grow and expand. If you have never heard the gravel truck story, you need to ask one of our senior members to tell it to you. You will be encouraged and God will be glorified. We must remember and tell these stories. But we, not, we must not let these stories, nor the building that God has miraculously provided, become idols that we worship. The Passover was a wonderful, wonderful event. And it has a very important place in our history as a people of faith. This sanctuary is a wonderful place and has an important place in our history as a local congregation. But neither the Passover nor our sanctuary nor anything else from our past must get in the way of our spiritual eyesight, our vision of what God wants us to do in the future. The best way to avoid allowing the past to become an idol is to be looking for how, where, and when God is going to do a new thing. All right, so that's a case for why we need to be open to change. Let's look at why change is so difficult to accept. B, why so much inertia? One reason is tradition slash status quo. If you've lived in New England for more than 30 minutes, you've probably heard the statement, we've always done it this way. Anybody ever heard we've always done it this way? I thought a few of you might have. Now, I am a big proponent of the maxim, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I certainly don't want to be the guy who goes around telling everyone to change just for change's sake, just for the sake of change. But when we hear the statement, we've always done it this way, I think we need to stop and ask a couple of really important questions. One, why have we always done it this way? There's certainly a good reason behind every activity, hopefully, that we take part in, both as individuals and a church. There's reasons for our habits, there's reasons for our church traditions, and they're usually really good ones. At least they were really good ones. So ask the question, what's the purpose behind the program? And then the second question, once you've answered that question, is do the good reasons of the past still hold today? Or have they changed? Is it still effective? Is it still working? Is it meeting the needs of our congregation today? Difficult questions. Another status quo statement is, well, this is who we've always been. This is who we've always been. 
When we hear this statement, the question we need to ask is, is this who we are supposed to be today? The answer may be yes, or the answer may be no. We can't live in the past. The past is gone. We can only live in the present, remembering the lessons of the past, and with our eyes on the future. Another reason that change is avoided is a laziness slash negativity. Quite frankly, change takes a whole lot of work. Change isn't easy. Um, it takes effort. Now, my experience here at Southshire Baptist Church is that most people here are not lazy. In fact, many of us are workaholics. So this may not pertain to us. But many of us, especially us New Englanders, are susceptible to what Dr. Ray Pendleton has termed negative processing. I know I'm guilty of this. Negative processing is responding to any proposed change with all the reasons it won't work. Yeah, does that sound familiar to any of you guys? First thing, as soon as someone says, here's something new we could do, I come up with a list of at least five or six reasons why that's a bad idea. Before I even think it might be a good idea. That's my first, my first approach. Negative processing. You know, I know I suffer from this classic New England malady. I could be like the man in, in Proverbs 22:13, who uh, won't go anywhere, won't go outside his house because there's a lion outside or I'll be murdered in the street. You know, well, something bad could happen. If I do that, there could be something negative. Pointing out the downsides and all the negatives leads us to the third and I believe the biggest, most prevalent obstacle to change. That of fear. That of fear. Number three, fear. It takes courage to change because change involves risk. Change involves risk. The bigger the change, the bigger the risk. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 14, it's on page 970 in the Pew Bibles, I want to take a quick look at one of my uh, favorite gospel narratives. Jesus walking on the water and then inviting Peter to get out of the boat and join him. Talk about relocation anxiety. He's in a warm boat with his friends. <laughs> and Jesus invites him to come out of a nice, warm, dry boat with his friends and do something that, other than Jesus at that very moment, had, to my knowledge, never been done by anyone before. To go to a place where no one had ever been. This is a Star Trek thing. To journey to go to lands where, whatever, you guys, you Trekkies know what I'm talking about. Let's look at this. Jesus has been teaching the crowds. He's fed 5,000 and he's tired. Uh, doesn't say that, but I'm, I'm inferring that. He needs to spend some time alone with the Father. So he sends the boys across the lake without him. And he stays behind. And he goes up on a mountainside to pray by himself. And when the evening came, he was there alone. But the boat had already uh, gone a considerable distance across the lake. But it had been buffeted by waves because there was a wind against it. So the boys are out on the water going across the lake and Jesus is now going to come to them. He doesn't have a boat, so he just decides to do a little walking, go for a little stroll. He goes walking across the water. So the guys see him. I'm in verse uh, 26. They saw him walking on the lake and they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cry out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. 
So then Peter does what I'm always doing, speaking before thinking. Shoots off his mouth. I'm guessing that right after the words came out of his mouth, he says, you know, he did one of those, I can't believe I just said that. doesn't say that in the text, but I'm guessing that if, it was, if I was Peter, that's how I would have been feeling. He shouts out, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you in the water. I just love that. Tell me to come to you in the water. And Jesus says one word, come. <laughs> and now here's Peter. Now, I don't know if it went down this way, but I like to think that here's Peter, and he's in the boat, and the rail of the boat's right here. And that uh, Peter does one of these. Yeah. Oh, it's a little cool. <laughs> and then maybe put a little weight here and a little weight there. And hey, I don't know. It doesn't say that. He may have just jumped right out with both feet. But he gets out of the boat. And you know the story. He starts walking on the water towards Jesus. Talk about a change. Talk about a risk. And then he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he looks at the water, he looks at the wind and the waves and he starts to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, verse 31, and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they had climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. What a great story of overcoming fear, taking a risk, changing locations. When we experience the fear that surrounds change, there are at least three things I think we need to remember. Number one, God goes ahead of us to prepare our way. God goes ahead of us to prepare our way. Jesus had already been out walking on the water when he invited Peter to join him. God sent Joseph ahead to Egypt well in advance of the famine that was to come. God is way ahead of us. God isn't surprised. He's way ahead of us. Two, Jeremy preached on this last week from Isaiah 43, 5. God is with us. God is with us. Isaiah 43.5 Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Jesus was out on the water with Peter. When we step out in faith, God goes with us. And thirdly, my favorite, God comes along behind us. God comes along behind us to clean up any mess that we make. If we step out in faith and initiate a change and we fail, God will save us. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and focused on the wind and the waves and he started to sink and he shouts out, Lord, save me. Jesus didn't let him drown. Jesus picks him up and puts him back in the boat. Are we afraid to change because we're afraid we may fail? Yeah, we may fail, but God will not let us down. God will not let us drown. Do you think for one moment that God will allow us to mess up His perfect will? When it comes to considering change, time and time again, 
We need to hear God tell us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Okay, so we've looked at the need for change and the things that we have to overcome. So now how do we know when and what to change? Discerning God's will is certainly a topic well-deserving of its own sermon series. But today I'd like to look at least briefly at a few important questions that we should ask whenever we're considering a change. Now, though this suffers from terminal triteness, I'm going to say it anyway. We must always keep in mind that the new way isn't better, and the old way isn't better. Jesus' way is better. It's not, let's go do something new, but rather, are we open to how God, through His Word and the Holy Spirit, may guide and direct us. So what should we change? Here are three questions that we should start with when we're prayerfully trying to discern whether change is in order. One, will this change bring glory to God? Will this change bring glory to God? Will it cause people, both within and without our congregation, to think more highly of our Lord? Will people praise God as a result of the change? Two, will the change advance God's kingdom? Will this change advance God's kingdom? What does God want to see happen in our own lives and in the life of our church? In our own lives, God wants to see us grow in our love for God, in our love for others, and in our likeness of Christ. Will the proposed change move me in this direction. As a church, it's our vision statement here, as a church we gather to become a more biblical, spiritually alive church by God-honoring heartfelt prayer and worship, faithful application of the Bible and our preaching and daily living, warm, sincere, and supportive Christian friendships, personal growth, and Christ-like maturity, equipping and mobilizing ourselves for outreach and service. We go to transform the South Shore area by evangelistic witness and compassionate outreach, both as individuals and as a body, partnering in prayer and ministry with other evangelicals, planting new, biblical, spiritually alive churches in the area. Three, we send missionaries to help reach the whole world for Christ by equipping ourselves for effective missions partnerships, building partnerships with missionaries and mission agencies, leveraging our prayers and pocketbooks for world evangelization, sending people from our own congregation to be missionaries. And then at the top, our vision, South Shore Baptist Church exists to glorify God by worshiping Him and making disciples for Christ of the South Shore people and those beyond. Making disciples for Christ of the South Shore people and beyond. Building on the foundations of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the Bible, and prayer, we seek to fulfill this vision through those following commitments which I read first. Will the proposed change facilitate the accomplishment of our church's vision statement? Third and finally, will this change be in harmony with God's word as interpreted by our church's doctrinal statement? Lots of ways to interpret God's word. Our doctrinal statement is a tool that helps us understand God's word. Will this change be in harmony with God's word and our doctrine? The Bible, God's Word, is absolutely trustworthy and has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. That's straight from our doctrinal statement. We never want to initiate a change that goes against the truth as revealed in God's Word. Can I have an amen?
Thank you. So there you have it. I've given you all the questions without any answers. Rather than uh, pushing for any specific change, my intention today is to challenge us, both as individuals and as a church, to be open to the possibility that God may want us to do a new thing. If you'd turn your sermon notes over, please, at this time, there's some application questions for thought, prayer, and discussion. We don't have a format to get together and discuss these, but uh, I think it would be a wonderful thing to do if we could. Application questions for thought, prayer, and discussion. Personal, what habit or behavior does God want me to change? What holds me back? What step or steps will I take this week to initiate this change? And who will I ask to hold me accountable? How and when? On a personal level. There may be some things that you know God is tugging at your heart wanting you to, to change up. What's keeping you from doing it? May this be a little shove to get you off that inertia, get the object moving. Corporate, what needs to change at South Shore Baptist Church? I'm sure we all have different opinions about this. An important question, what holds us back? Do we worship the idol of our past? Is God's glory in any way constrained by our corporate resistance to change? What does God want me to do at South Shore Baptist to help facilitate an atmosphere that is open and embracing to God-glorifying change? Again, I have the questions without the answers. I'm going to ask you if you would uh, please stand with me for a closing prayer, and then the praise team is going to come and lead us in one final uh, song of praise and worship. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Let's pray. God, I'm challenged by your word this morning. And I confess to you my own fear and resistance to change. Father, I know that the very first step of change is prayer. And Lord, we come to you this morning. We want you to guide and direct us. We don't know the changes you want us to make even in our own lives, let alone the changes that you might want here at South Shore Baptist Church. So we seek your face. We seek your direction. We seek your guidance. Father, we trust in you and you alone. We thank you for how you've worked in the past. We give you praise and glory for, for your faithfulness to us as a people in the past. And now, Lord, we ask that you would give us a vision for our future. Show us where you want us to go individually, the changes you want us to make in our own personal lives, and reveal to us where you want us to go as a congregation. Make us open to seeing your direction, your vision of the future. Pray this all in Jesus' name. People, Lord said. Amen. Amen.